Now, as I mentioned before, this is our, actually, uh, we've been in our series entitled I Church, where we connect the believer to the greater body of Christ. Because so often we want to be, as I mentioned earlier, Lone Ranger Christians. And we can't be. God has, has designed us to be in the body. Um, and many of us, we're all given tasks. And some of us don't feel gifted to do certain tasks. One of the most difficult, I think, for all of us, for whatever reason, is evangelism. Sharing the good news of who Jesus is. And we think, for whatever reason, that it is the responsibility of trained experts to do it. Those that have the education, I mean, we feel like we may not know what to say or, or what to do. But see, God has made it that each one of us can evangelize. Every single person in this room who has claimed Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior can share the gospel. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to go to seminary. You can do it. If you can learn, you can do it. I, I'm reminded uh, a few years back when uh, my wife and I first got married, and uh, we didn't have any furniture. We were just like any brand new couple. You know, it's all piecemeal, hand-me-down kind of things. And, and um, we needed uh, uh, um, a desk. I needed a desk. And um, I, I found this desk in the house we moved into. It was an old-school desk. It had been, it'd been there for 40 years. It had been through floods. It had holes in it. It was just falling apart. And I thought, if I could refinish this desk or get someone to refinish it, then it'll be a great desk. It's a beautiful desk. It's a solid oak desk. It's beautiful. And so I, I thought, I, I went, well, who could refinish this? I, I didn't have the money to pay someone. And I remember talking to a guy that I worked with several years ago about construction and how he learned to do what he did. And he said, I, if it's in a book, I can learn it. I can learn anything. If someone shows me, I can learn it. And I took that to heart. So I started looking at books or YouTube videos of people how to refinish furniture. And so I learned. And it's what you call, and we, we, we know the vernacular, do-it-yourself project, a DIY project, right? And there's even a network for it. I mean, we all know these do-it-yourself projects that we can, we can do. And, it, and even the, the most layman or uneducated person can learn how to do it, a do-it-yourself project. You have some in your home. And th that's what, the way that God has made evangelism. It's a do-it-yourself project that he has showed us through his word and offered us training and lets us see the expert at work. Just like I went on, on YouTube to watch some of these experts doing things like that so I could learn from them. We go to the scripture and we see an expert at work evangelizing. And that is the Apostle Paul. Pa the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever s seen. And he gives with, uh, to each one of us, or especially within the Word of God, uh, we can see m his many different approaches to evangelism. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach, by the way. Did you know that? There's not a one-size-fits-all. It is so varied. And um, today we're going to highlight one episode. I know it says... Uh, um, in your bulletin, it says 1 through 34, but we're going to actually looking at 16 through 34 of Acts chapter 17. And we're going to see how Paul approached evangelism and left a template for each one of us that we can learn from and adapt to each one of our own situations. So we're in Acts chapter 17. We'll be reading from verses 16 through 34. I'd invite you to stand uh, to, as we read God's word together. It is our tradition here at Village Bible Church to stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from 16 through 34 as we examine this episode uh, of Paul evangelizing or doing outreach. The Apostle Paul, uh, 
is uh, touched here, and the, the author of this book is the Holy Spirit through Dr. Luke, says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this, with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking to learn. Lord, we see within the Apostle Paul this pure example on how to share your word. Lord, may we learn the insights and the methods and the means by which he, that he employed to share your wondrous word. Give us courage, give us boldness, and give us minds to apprehend, and spirits that are willing to do what it is that you desire us to do, and that is share your truth with a lost and dying and rebellious generation. Use us today, speak to us by your spirit, that your name might receive glory in us and through us, for your honor and glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's jump right in. Through this snippet, through this snippet we can see Paul at work. Now I want us to be looking at not only 16 through 34, but I do want us to go back and look slightly at Acts chapter 17, um, because we see that Paul, 
uh, does a few other things before that. I want us to keep your, keep your Bible open, keep looking with me. Now, I want us to look at 17, verse 1, and especially verse 2. Now, when they had passed through Amph- Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And here's what Paul does. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Now, if we were to go through the book of Acts as a whole, especially uh, chapters 9 through chapter 28, we're going to see Paul, going to see Paul sharing the gospel in a variety of different situations. Now, Paul, what he is doing is if, uh, is, is leaving for us an example that if we are to do it ourselves, if we are to outreach and share the gospel, then it involves several different things. The first of all, it means it involves us preparing to give an answer for the hope that is in you. We all are to be preparing to give a reason for the hope that is in us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you claim his spirit in your life, that he has forgiven you of your sins, that you believe that he died on the cross for you, then it is your responsibility, yea, it is your, uh, it is your duty to know who he is and, and be prepared to tell other people about who he is. The apostle uh, Peter talked about this in 1 Peter I would like us to look at this for a moment. This is from the NIV, 1984 version, where it said, But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do so with what? Gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. Each one of us who follows Jesus must be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Now, what does that involve? It involves this. First of all, it involves loving the Savior. You know, we expound and we relate on and we share what we love. You ever been to a really cool vacation spot? It's just absolutely beautiful. When you got back, did you want to tell other people about it and share it? Think about your favorite movie, your favorite song. Do you share it? Favorite book? Whatever it might be. It could, you could be a car addict and love cars and engines, or you could be a person who likes movies or TV shows or, or you know, certain tools or whatever it may be. We share what we love. Jesus put it this way. I want us to look at Luke chapter 6 here. Let's call that up. Chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the heart, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, we overflow with what we love. Now, I love what John, how John Piper uh, describes this. He calls it boiling for Christ. When you're so just inflamed and in love with the Savior that it overflows out of everything that you do. You can't, you can't keep it in. As Paul says, woe is to me if I do not preach the gospel. Or even Jeremiah said, the word of God is like a fire within me and i got to let it out. You can't keep it in. But it means loving the Savior. 
Do you love the Savior? Do you love Him so much that it overflows from your heart? Now, where do we begin, though? What do we tell them? Uh, we just looked at that, that verse in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 2. I want us to look at that again. Look at 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, he didn't have the New Testament yet. So he's arguing from the Old Testament, explaining from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. Now, we have the New Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, and we are to know them. How well do you know them? You know, the Scripture says, I mean, we should know and study to show ourselves approved unto God, which means that we are to be knowing the Scriptures, knowing the Scriptures. Write that down. Do you, do you know the Scriptures? How well do you know them? You know, I was amazed. I remember talking to a man named Gordon Hugenberger. Gordon Hugenberger is the pastor of Park Street Church in historic Boston. It's kind of like Moody Memorial in Chicago. And this guy is one of the most brilliant men I've ever met in my entire life. He is on translation committees for scriptures. He's the guy that you see his initials in certain Bibles for different things. I mean, he knows all these different languages, and he just goes from one to the other. And he pastors a church where you have some of the cream of the crop or the intellectual elite of our society in his church every week. MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Harvard University. I mean, there's some students that go there, professors that go to his church. Now, I know we think they're completely uh, bankrupt, and many of them are, but there are Christians in these places. And this guy, I, I was talking to him, and I said, you're a brilliant man. Who's the, I just have to ask you, who's the smartest man you ever met? And he starts telling me the story about this man named Vern Poitras, who's also a professor. He said, he's the most brilliant man I've ever met. After getting his Ph.D. in, in uh, mathematics from Harvard, he went to seminary. I mean, I'm still getting over the mathematics from Harvard. And he said, he goes to seminary. And we took a trip from Boston, and I think it was either to, to Philadelphia, it might have been to New Haven, Connecticut. So it was either a two-hour or a five-hour drive, I can't remember. And he said, and he quoted to me the entire New Testament from the very beginning to the very end of our drive. And what's even more amazing, he did it in Greek. Okay? Now, many of us are like, okay, that just benches it. I'm never going to memorize scripture. No. I mean, if, if someone can do that, that gives us hope. We can do small things, and we think, oh, I can't memorize that. I'm, I'm gonna, my daughter the other day, she, we were memorizing the verse that we've been doing in our generation. And, and she was going through one of them, and she said, I just can't, I, I have a hard time memorizing. That's a big verse. And then I, I quoted to her her favorite song. And I started singing the first few, first few words of it, and then she stopped and smiled and kept singing it. And I said, that what you just quoted to me is a lot larger than that verse that you just mentioned. I mean, how many of you can recite all the words for, we didn't start the fire? Okay. Some of you are like, I, I can get through the first one. I don't know. But the idea is, is we memorize songs, right? Why can't we memorize Scripture? We're to be knowing the Scriptures. And we all can learn it. it might, some of us have different abilities to learn, but we're to know the Scriptures. See, Paul knew the Scriptures. So he could sit down and he could talk with people about them. But that's, why we, that's one of the reasons we read the Bible is to learn. And that's why we memorize verses 
and we memorize them verbatim so that at moments where we need them, the Holy Spirit brings them to mind, and we can quote them. That's, we're to know the Word of God. Jesus left that example for us when he was being tempted by the devil. He uses the means that we ourselves have, and that is the Word of God. Now, we're to be knowing the Scriptures, and we're also to be ready in every situation. We are to be ready in every situation. Paul understood this, and his life was a demonstration of it, and that's why he also wrote about it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Let me throw this up there for you. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's saying you've got to be ready all the time. I mean, does anyone here know what the, the, the uh, Latin uh, motto is of the Coast Guard? It's, oh, Daryl does. What is it? What is it? No, that's the Marines. Paratus, Semper Paratus. And it means, you know, <laughs> I'm impressed that you know it. Oh, it's the title of their song. Very, very good. Yes. Always ready, always prepared. Because the Coast Guard understand that they have to be ready at a moment's notice to go. As Christians, we're to be always ready. And, and when I was in school, they told us, you have to be ready to preach, pray, or die. All at a moment's notice. Preach, pray, or die. We're to be ready each and every situation that God gives to us, always giving a reason for the hope that we have. Now, we all might know that, but the question is, is that what do we say when we get there? How, what approach should I take? What, what do I say? I don't know what to say to so-and-so or, or to this person or to that person. Well, this helps when, you, when we know our audience. You need to know your audience. You need to know your audience. That's what we need to see as we're looking at the Apostle Paul's example. Now, Paul, what did he do when he went into the synagogues? He reasoned from the scriptures. Now, in the, uh, see if you remember what we just read in Acts six, uh, 17, 16 through 34. Does Paul ever quote the scriptures? Not once. Now, what we see here, Paul taking a totally different tack. Now, we need to get some background to understand what was going on. I mean, Paul goes into this situation in Athens. And he, he shows us that, this, that there's not a one-size-fits-all. When the synagogues, he would go and connect with the Jews in the synagogues on the Sabbath because he knew they were there. But suddenly he's in Athens. Now, Athens is a little bit different for us to understand. Athens was like the, um, is like Boston today. Okay, it was, it was the, the place where everybody went if you wanted culture. And the intellectual elite were there. You had such luminaries as Socrates, or Aristotle, or Plato, or a guy named Euripides, uh, or um, you've got Zeno. These are all ph philosophers, and they all started their own, like, philosophical schools. And we see that there, there are two schools that Paul is addressing, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Epicurus, not Epimenides, excuse me. Um, Epicurus. And he starts these two, th there are these two philosophical schools are started. And Paul doesn't go to the synagogue. Where does he go? Look at your text. Where does he go? He goes where? The marketplace. It's out on the street, the economic center where all business is being done. He's going, he's going out just talking to people. 
See, with the Jews, he went to the synagogue and on the Sabbaths because he knew they were there. But here, and he would reason from the scriptures. But here, he's going into a people who didn't regard the scriptures, who didn't believe in a Messiah and a coming one, who had a completely different worldview than he himself had. And they were philosophers, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And he starts to preach and talk to them. And it says in verse 16, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked, disturbed within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. There's idolatry going on. I mean, real idolatry, uh, physical idolatry, people bowing down to statues because many of the people within Greece are following the pantheons of the gods and the goddesses. So he reasoned in the synagogue. He went with the Jews at first and the devout persons in the marketplace every day. So how often does he do this? Daily. He's doing this all the time. That's why he said be ready, ready in season and out of season. Always, as Peter said, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you, which is what Paul does. He goes in there daily in the marketplace with those who happen to be there. Now, we're going to see what he's doing. The first thing that he is doing, as we're going to see from his response, is he is studying their culture. I have the word your. I want you to cross that out. Put their. Put their. Studying their culture. He's trying to figure out who they are and find a connecting point with them. Now, what does he do? What are some of the things he do- does? He studies their architecture. He sees some of the, the landmarks and the religious things that are going on. He's interacting with the people. He is finding a connecting point, but he's studying them and how to speak to them. Now, we all do this intuitively. We may not think, we might, uh, when we think about actually studying, we might have a wrong terminology, but we do. We do this, and, and we know this. Like, for example, if you are a Bears fan and you're surrounded by Green Bay Packer fans, you're not going to be talking, I mean, r- you know, and they're violent. <laughs> You're not going to be saying, yay, rah. You know, you're going to be real quiet on the down low. Uh, unless you're my wife, and then you'll be in their face. Uh, my wife is an in-your-face football fan, and she, she thrives on that. Um, but most of us would just want to keep it on the DL. You know, we want to stay on the down low and, and not really talk about it. But see, Paul is studying what is the connection point between myself and this culture. He says, I know I don't believe in all these gods that they have, and I'm not exactly sure of all their philosophical schools. I'm, I've been interacting with them, and I'm learning some things as I go, but how do I connect to them? Now, we have to understand what's going on here. Let's, let's try to dray it out a little bit more. He's uh, talking with them, and we can see some of the content of his message. Let's look at that. In verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler. Literally, the, the, the term there is, it's, uh, in Greek, is about pecking, like a bird. The bird just pecking. In other words, it'd be in our vernacular, what does this bird brain want to say? He's an idiot. He's, un- he's, he's an idiot. What is he talking about? So they, they, they say, well, we want to hear more about what you're saying, and we like new ideas, and, and this is a new idea, so let's talk about it. So they invite him to the Areopagus, or it's also known as Mars Hill. Now, it was named after the Greek god of war, uh, Mars, and it was known as a place where the ruling authority of Greeks, Roman dignitaries, and women of high esteem went or met. 
Its main area of influence was found within the realm of religion and morals. So this is the, the top place. Paul now has been invited to talk with them. These are the city's religious leaders. But they came from different philosophical schools or parties, in essence. Different, you know, like with Republicans and Democrats, they both represent different philosophies of government. Right? Yes, you can nod your head yes. Yes. Now here, it's even more different and opposed than that within our own governmental two-party system. It's the, you have Epicureans and Stoics. Now, we need to understand who they are. See, these Epicureans have little influence outside of the academic elite of their day. They dismissed popular notions about the gods. They didn't believe in all the pantheon of gods. If deities existed in their mind, Epicureans argued, one could know them only in terms of the physical phenomena like the stars or the planets. In Epicurean philosophy, the supreme goal was pleasure, defined, uh, defined especially as the absence of pain. So they're, they're the hedonists of the day. They're looking for pleasure without pain. They, wanna, they, they just want to have fun. But contrast were the more, the more popular Stoics the, who opposed pleasure, criticized the Epicureans, and usually profess belief in the gods. Nevertheless, Stoics had interpretations of the gods that were quite different from those held by the common people. And sometimes Stoics focused on the supreme deity whom they saw as ruling and permeating the entire universe. But here's where Paul is a genius. He finds a connecting point with them. No sense in reasoning that Jesus was the Christ from the law and the prophets. They didn't believe them. This group didn't believe in any coming messianic figure. On the contrary, they had an entirely different worldview. And he begins by addressing them, and he says, In many ways, I perceive that you are religious. Now, in the Greek, it is really hard to tell if he's saying that you're pious or superstitious. It's going either way. But he says there's a connecting point here. I'm saying that you are religious. That's a good thing. You're good. You have a religion. And he even talks about that they have all these different altars, and then he focuses on the one thing, the huge connecting point. He says, you have built an altar to who? The unknown God. And that's where he really hones in. He finds the connecting point, and he reaches in, and he says, this, this God that you say you don't know, I'm going to tell you who he is right now. It's genius, is what he's doing. Totally genius. So he says, and look in verse 23. He says, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man. And he's undoubtedly pointing at the, at the, at the Parthenon. It's right there, these, these, these temples that have been constructed throughout Greece. And he's saying, he doesn't live in these. These are great, these are grand, but he doesn't live in these. I'm here to tell you who this God is. And he does this just remarkable. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, many of the different pantheon of gods and goddesses, these gods always were in need of something because they were slightly just more exalted than our own humanity. And if you ever read Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey, you find out how just, uh, not virtuous, but just the opposite of that. They're very, just how sinful they really were. They're just slightly better than men, except they have powers, and they do more sins than men do. 
they're just completely corrupt. And they're always needing sacrifices and things like that. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. He doesn't need that. And he goes on. He hits creation. He says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. He's referring back to Adam. He's referring to a literal Adam and creation. That Adam is physically there. One man didn't evolve. He made one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now this is where he gets really genius. Look at verse 28. In him, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now, who's he quoting there? Quoting actually... Epimenides of Crete. You might have a little footnote in there. Now, here's what's the genius part. They loved Epimenides of Crete. He quotes another guy, Eratus, and his poem, Phenomena. And he's quoting their own guys to prove Jesus. This is genius. He finds a connecting point with their own philosophers, their own teachers, to show that Jesus is the Son of God. He totally, <laughs> totally proves Jesus. And it's interesting, in, in verse 27, he says, feel their way toward him, implies a kind of groping around in darkness without really knowing how to find God, though they hoped that they would. See, the, the verb translated feel their way and find are in the optative mood in Greek, suggesting possibilities considered uncertain of realization. See, he's saying that might feel their way, and then he quotes to draw out this. And though he quotes uh, them with approval, this doesn't imply that he approves of other things that the writers said or wrote. Very important note on that. But remember, they called him a, a babbler or a bird brain. Now, his sermon, though, wasn't a failure because it resulted in new believers, including the influential, or influential Dionysius. And a tradition from Ephesus reports that Dionysius the Areopagite became the first Christian bishop of Athens. But see, what happened there is, is like any encounter, Paul understood and studied his audience. He studies and starts with their generic conception of God, where they are, and develops the storyline of, of who Jesus is, focusing on creation and then even focusing on the last judgment. He hits all of these different things. He's not worried about being offensive. He's telling them the gospel, but he's doing it in a good manner. He's very polite, he's very courteous, which we're going to see that in just a moment as he's, he's doing that. But we, we, we see from him that we need to be aware that other people are listening. Even when he's in the marketplace, that's where the conversation started, right? And then we, we need to be aware that people are listening to us talk. If people were to ease, eavesdrop on your conversations, what would they learn about you? It's very imperative that we see here that we need to be seasoning our conversation. If we are going to win people to Jesus Christ, our conversation needs to be filled with the truth of who Jesus is. That's why we see here, seizing your conversation, but I want to call this scripture up for you. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know, may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, there's says a practical element to it. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 16. Just flip back a page. Acts chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. This is, 
we see this tangible example of these words of Paul being lived out in his life. Verse chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of pl- a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. People are doing laundry. They're they're you know they're using the water. They're all it's a community time, and. It's interesting. In verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a, city, a seller of purple and goods who was a worshiper of God, meaning she's a, she's a God-fearer. She's not a full con- Jewish convert, but she's a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. So in essence, it was through his conversation that this woman heard, and she came to believe. Now, let me ask you a question. When you're at Starbucks or Harner's or Jewel, or when you are uh, in line at the DMV, or what would people learn about your conversation? Uh, There's an interesting man by the name of uh, Mark Cahill, who was a Uh, He's an evangelist. He also played college basketball at Auburn University with Charles Barkley. And uh, he's he's an evangelist now. He's just on fire for the Lord. And he got interviewed, and it was interesting, he got interviewed about what it was like to be Charles Barkley's teammate. And he talked about the interview later, and he said, in every aspect of the interview, I tried to mention Jesus. So no matter what happened and how they cut the video, there would always be Jesus in the video. So how is our conversation? How is it at your workplace? I mean, even when you get angry, what comes out of your mouth? What do you say to those that you work with? It's across your cubicle. Or maybe in high, if you're in high school, that's on the other, on the other locker. Or on the field, or when you're, when you're playing a game. I find you learn more about a person, especially a guy, when you're on a basketball court or a soccer field or a football field than you could ever learn an hour sitting across from them at the table. You find out where they're at real quick when they get angry, when you see life really hitting them hard. But we all have that point. Is your conversation seasoned? Do other people want to know more, inquire more? We need to season our conversation because we never know who's listening. Somebody came to know Jesus just through conversation. We, we also have to realize that people are looking at not only what we say, but at our lives. And we all know that we fall short in one way or another, which means we need to shore up our conduct. Because we know some people will never hear what we say, but they're looking at our lives. And we're going to have glaring inconsistencies, and we all need to be shoring them up. We have to understand none of us are going to be perfect, but we need to try. We need to get better. And we need to have Christ be seen more in our lives, which means shoring up our conduct. Paul, or Peter, talks about this in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those are unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of the visitation. So in other words, what's your life look like? Again, we all know where we failed. We all know where we've tripped up. We all know that we have inconsistencies. But each day we should be coming to look, we should be starting to look more like Jesus than the day before. Are you progressing? Are we progressing as individuals, 
and as a church. You know, I remember the DC Talk song, What If I Stumble? Anybody remember that song? What If I Stumble? What If I Fall? One of the greatest parts of that song is actually the very beginning where there's a quote read by Brennan Manning. Here it is for you. I want to show this to you. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. It's true. We know where we've fallen. We know where we've been short. But we need to continue to grow and let our lifestyle and our lips connect with one another so that Christ might be seen in each one of us. Now, Paul understood the power of a life. We have to watch our conduct, our conversation. We must be sure that, like Paul, we are employing the right approach. Number three within your notes, employing the right approach. Now, Paul used many different ways to talk to people about Jesus. To the Jews, he reasoned from the scriptures. To the Greeks, he talked about them and used their philosophers to prove the existence of God and direct them to Jesus. But do you know, sometimes the greatest approach that we can have doesn't involve any of those things. The greatest, one of the greatest ways of evangelizing involves something totally different. It's not even how we interact with unbelievers. It's how we interact with believers. I want us to see, look at something for a moment. You can turn with me, uh, or you can look at the board. But John 17, 20 through 23. This is Jesus preaching in his high priestly prayer. And he says this. Right, not preaching, but praying in his high priestly prayer. In verse 20 of John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be, uh, may, may, all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. In other words, there is so much strength and power and being unified with the body of believers. See, that's why we can't be Lone Range Christians. We have to be, the body and the believer have to be synced together, connected. And it's when we are connected that power comes. Perhaps the, the acute way or of understanding it, as I've understood it, comes from Charles Schultz's Peanuts cartoon. Between uh, Lucy and Linus having a conversation Lucy demanded that Linus change the TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. And uh, she, she, Linus says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? That's what Linus said. And she says, these five fingers, says Lucy, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. And he goes, which channel do you want? Asks Linus, and turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? You know? Each one of us has the potential. But many of us say, why can't we do it? But it's right there. It's for us, for the taking, as a body of believers. That's what it means. We have to be synced together. And God uses us powerfully when we are synced together, which means that we need to be living in unity. Living in unity. 
That's the first approach that we need to have is being together with the body. Getting to know one another. That's what I love about generations. We're getting together, we're sitting together, we're talking together, we're eating together, we're getting to know one another and truly be the body. But we need to get to know it. We need to take that first step in living in unity, which means we have to know the person that we're sitting next to. That's why we have things like fast fellowship that are coming up. We know that people are busy, but we want to take the time. We want to place an emphasis on this and getting to know one another so then we can truly be the body and reach out to other people. That's what it means. We need to be living in unity. But we can't just be living in unity. That's a great sign of evangelism because Jesus wants us to be. And he says, by us being unified, the world may know that he is in us. Unfortunately, Satan has done his will and his way by fracturing many different circles. We're to continue to seek unity. However, it's not just unity. We're also to speak the truth of what God has done in our own lives. That means giving your testimony. What is your testimony? What is your story? What has God done in your life? I love hearing testimonies. We all need to hear those testimonies. That's why we want to, we'll be having a baptism at the end of this month. People are going to be giving their testimonies. And I would really encourage you, I mean, to be thinking about it. What has God done in your life? You need to share that with other people. Because you know why? Somebody could be going in the same situation that you were in, and they hear what God did in your life. It gives them hope, and they turn to the Savior. Because they know that God transforms lives. We need to be giving our testimony. We can see Paul doing that in Acts chapter 26 before King Agrippa. He recites his entire testimony to the king. It's pretty amazing. We need to be giving our testimony. However, we don't just tell our story, but then we proclaim God's saving activity. Proclaim God's saving activity. We, we tell them that Jesus' claim on their life. That Jesus is the one true God. He's not just operating in my life. He is God. I remember witnessing to a, a family member a couple Christmases ago in Florida. And I, I'd been praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with this uh, young man and this young woman. I, I went through the whole, my whole testimony, and I shared the gospel, and her response was what I hear so often, that's good for you. And I went, no, 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 no. It's not just good for me, it's good for everybody. And if Jesus is who he says it is, then it requires us all responding, not just me, every single person. If God is who he says he is, and he has testified to us about his uniqueness and what he has done to save man, then it requires each of us to respond to that and order our life accordingly. We need to make sure that we are proclaiming his saving activity. That's what Paul does. It's interesting, in verse 18, we get, a, we get some, uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, we see Paul, uh, see some of the example of what Paul had been preaching. See, others said in verse 18, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In an, uh, to an Athenian, that was a high charge, by the way, because that's what they got Socrates to do, is they, they accused Socrates of advocating foreign divinities. Matter of fact, there was another priestess who'd been stoned because she'd advocated a foreign divinity. So with Paul, them accusing Paul of that, they wanted to draw it out further, but they also wanted to see, is this a possibility of a capital crime? So Paul, in the face of death and judgment, he proclaims, and then he says in verse 26, he, he talks about creation. 
And he talks about the purpose of man in verse 27. In the hope that they would seek God. That's why God created the face of the earth. That he, I mean, created man to have fellowship with man. And ha- perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually, actually from each one of us. And then he does what many of us don't want to go to do. Look at verse 31 32. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given full assurance by raising him from the dead. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't pull back. He dumps the theological dump truck on their worldview. He just backs up and gives it to them. And he says, the world is going to be judged one day. Christ is going to judge mankind for whether or not we have believed or rejected him. You know, it's interesting, Paul, we also get other snippets of uh, Paul's sermons, and one of them is when he is preaching before um, Agrippa and Bernice, who were living in this uh, illegitimate marriage. And then he starts talking about the kingdom of God, righteousness, and self-control, and Agrippa gets disturbed. He says, no more, no more, no more, I don't want to hear anymore. Because he realized that he was responsible for his action. People don't want to hear that, but Paul keeps pressing it. Each one of us are to hear the truth of who God is and proclaim God's saving activity and what he has done in and through Jesus Christ. Proclaiming God's saving activity. But as we do so, make sure that we're not being jerks. We, We have to have the right attitude. We have to have the right attitude when we share with people. That's number four within your notes, having the right attitude. See, Peter admonished us to have the right attitude, and Paul reflected that truth. I want us to look at 1 Peter 3.15 again. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but look down at the second part of verse 15. But do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. When we give a reason, when we share the gospel, we do so with gentleness and respect. Now, that means this. If we're to have the right attitude, it involves uh, four different things here. First of all, it means being civil. He didn't badmouth the Athenians. He didn't call them a bunch of pagans and walk out of the room. And, and, and he didn't do that. He was civil with them. And he calmly and loving them, lovingly walked them through the truth of the gospel, even when they started calling him a bird brain and an idiot. It's basically what they're saying. He was calm. He didn't get angry. In fact, he was also courteous. He's courteous. He's taking their questions. He is answering them. Answering them. I mean, are you courteous or do you bombast people? Are you a spiritual bully? Are you gracious? Paul was, and so are we to be. We're also to be compassionate. Compassionate. Paul didn't hesitate to proclaim the full truth of God's word, but he did, uh, did so not to cut and harm, but to convict and heal. He cared enough with people to talk to them about their need of Jesus Christ. But he also was courageous. He was courageous. See, our natural inclination is to be fearful, but God desires that we be courageous. I mean, can you imagine walking into a mosque or the Hindu temple down there and just start trying to talk to people about Jesus? Paul goes into the synagogues. He goes out into the marketplace. I mean, go out where you are and talk to people. Start a conversation. Now, I'm not saying you have to do cold evangelism. Some people are more gifted to do that, but just start a conversation. You never know where it's going to go. You never know. 
and if and be civil, be courteous, but also be courageous. Don't back down. Because we understand that some people are going to respond in belief and some people are going to reject us. Which is why Jesus had to remind us in John 15, uh, 18 through 20 of this truth. Look at this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. In other words, you're going to get persecuted. Some people are going to believe, and some people aren't going to believe. But we have to be waiting on God to act. That's our responsibility, waiting on God to act. I like how some people put it. We're just to cast out the nets, let God do the rest. We can't make a person believe. But we're to continue to be faithful and wait on God to act. Now that, that involves a few different things here. First of all, it means relying on the Spirit's power. Now remember Lydia that I talked about who was converted through Paul's conversation? Remember that? In Acts chapter 16, verse 14. I want us to, to see this for a moment. One who heard was a was a, heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, which we talked about. She was a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. But who opened her heart? God did. So they did what they're supposed to do to talk about Jesus, and then God did what he did by opening their heart. The Spirit working in conjunction with our obedience. So it's God who does it. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 6. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts, not us. The Holy Spirit transforms hearts and minds, not us. We're not to be changing people. God does. Here's another one. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. This is God making a person new and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, by, or so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's the Spirit of God working in conjunction with us, taking steps of faith and sharing the truth of who Jesus is. But we must remember that it is a process. We're going to get to that in a moment, which means that we need to be persevering in prayer. Persevering in prayer. We need to keep praying and not give up. I like how uh, Dave Ramsey, in his class, he talks about, and I'm sure you've heard it before, but how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How are people saved? One prayer at a time, one conversation at a time. Remember that. And we need to be exer exercising patience. We need to be patient with people. We need to be patient with people. I'm sure Paul had to be patient as he's sharing the gospel with individuals. And remember, last of all, that it's a process. It's a process, and everyone's at a different place. And like in verse 32 through 34 of chapter 17, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see a few different responses there. Some people mocked him. Others said, I want to know more. And there's others that believed. Some mocked. Some were wanting to know more. And there's others that believed. We're all in process. Every one of us are. We're all at different levels in our sanctification and being made more like Jesus. And we need to make sure that we're, we're not treating everyone like they've arrived or that we have arrived. We're all in process. Like I've told you before, and we've talked about it, the best way to illustrate it is looking at it as a light switch. For some of us, we were in darkness, and then we were in light. Light was on. Such a dramatic change. Others of us, though, are like a dimmer switch. And we can't remember the exact moment, but we remember the time that the light was on. We're all in process. We're all growing in our sanctification and understanding of who Jesus is. We need to be patient with others, especially as we're sharing the gospel. It's, it's a do-it-yourself project, but we don't just do it by ourselves. We do it in conjunction with a body, learning from one another, sharing together. Though we look at Paul, we also understand that Paul was connected to the body of Christ, and so too are we to be. We can all practice do-it-yourself outreach. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to go to Bible college or seminary. All you have to have is a love for God that spills onto other people, and each one of us can do it. But perhaps you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is. Perhaps you're not exactly sure. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe? It's simple as that. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Paul said in Acts chapter 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Some people say, well, I, I have to get my life cleaned up before I come to Jesus. No, you don't come to know Jesus, and then he does the rest. It's like getting your house redone. The contractor's knocking at the door. Your job is to simply let him in. You're not to do all the work before he gets there. Yours is to simply answer the door when he knocks, and Jesus is knocking at your heart, calling you and saying, let me come in. Let me do my work in your life. Believe in me, and you will be saved. It involves turning away from your sin, confessing your sin, and then turning from them and just embracing Jesus, saying that I can't do this anymore. I recognize that I've been in rebellion to God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I invite him into my life. It's simple as that, and then you let God do his work. Just open the door and let him in, and then he does the rest. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we all can share the gospel, but Lord, we are so afraid we're afraid what other people might think. We're afraid of messing it up and saying something wrong. We're afraid of, of what they're going to think about us or how they might treat us or look at us. Lord, we also know that when we share, we know that our life has is, is now been brought to the forefront. We know that we've been inconsistent. We know that our conversation hasn't always been edifying or pure in your sight, and our lives have, are continually filled with failings and fallings. But, Lord, we also know that through you there is forgiveness. And we embrace that. And we ask you, ask you, Lord, to take a little that we have and do great things. Lord, help us to just cast the nets overboard. And, Lord, use us as broken and frail as we are. Use us. Lord, just as your servant D.L. Moody said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. 
Lord, we all know that we've been crooked one way or another, but help us to, to shore up our conduct, to season our conversation, and to take the great steps of faith as we rely on the Spirit's power and we persevere in prayer. Lord, help us to recognize people are in process and continually and lovingly in civil and courteous and courageous discourse call people to the saving knowledge of who you are that they too may know you as Lord and Savior of their life. Lord, please use us just as we are that your name might receive, rep- might receive praise in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.